Grief is something that all of us will experience throughout life. It's a natural response of emotional suffering when something or someone that you love is gone. Often, the pain of loss can feel absolutely overwhelming. We feel difficulty and unexpected emotions like shock, anger, disbelief, guilt, and profound sadness. One of the best descriptions of grief I've ever come across is the idea that grief is love that you can feel, but you're not able to give. I, like most people, have experienced grief now two times in my life. Both times, the loss happened right before I was meant to travel. And so twice, I found myself in a foreign place in the midst of insurmountable grief. But somehow, traveling really helped me heal in the early stages of that grief. Today on Alpaca My Bags, we're going to talk about grief and how for some people, travel can help to heal it. Here to talk with me about it is Andrew Stephen. He's the host of a new podcast called Trail Wait, in which Andrew narrates a year of his life spent, among other things, backpacking the John Muir Trail. Through audio diaries, recordings from the trail, and interviews, the show chronicles Andrew's eye-opening adventure of self-discovery that includes grappling with the death of his mom. We're going to talk about his experiences on the trail and how that impacted his experience of grief, among other things. Before we dive in, I just want to give a quick content warning. We're going to be talking about death and loss in this episode, so feel free to skip it. I also want to take a moment to thank our loyal Patreon subscribers for supporting the show on a monthly basis and ultimately supporting me in tackling really special topics like this one. It means a lot to know that you're there. If you want to support the podcast as well, check out the link in our show notes. Hey, Andrew, welcome to the show. Can you start by introducing yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, My name's Andrew, and I, like you, Aaron, am a podcaster, storyteller, and I love to travel and camp and get outside as much as I can. So I just want to dive right into it. I love the title of your podcast, (laughs) Trail Weight. And could you explain to us what the meaning behind this name is and how you landed on it for your show? Yeah, I think the uh, the sort of phrase that we stumbled upon that kind of sums it up nicely is when I started this podcast, I thought it was going to be about weight loss, but little did I know it was going to be about loss of a completely different type. Yeah, I sort of I, I started I started working on this project because, like I said, I love camping, I love going outdoors, but had had found moments where my physical ability sort of prevented me from experiencing some of the things I wanted to experience. And so sort of using it as a trick, this project to sort of like commit myself to hiking a long through hike. But then I just started recording the process. So I had like a record of it. That's really cool. It's sort of like the project held you accountable for your goal. Yeah, I think as a storyteller, someone like I live in Los Angeles, sort of work in and around the entertainment industry. And so there's a there's a term that is sort of used in, I guess, in all sorts of writing, whether it's books or movies, called an inciting incident. And it's sort of that part in a story where, like, uh, a character's hand is forced. And so I sort of saw this as an opportunity to create my own inciting incident. 
I really like how you say that like the it evolved from being about weight loss to something else. Um, it's interesting you say that because I feel like a lot of shows go through that kind of evolution. Like I know this show also, we started out like with a pretty different show than where we're at now. Yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 and that's a little bit cute for me to say it was about weight loss, but a loss of another type. It's definitely true. Like, I thought it would be a fun adventure story. I thought it'd be a, I thought it'd be a story of transformation and was, was open and wanted to sort of chronicle other people's stories as well. But I thought it was going to be a little bit more typical in the sense of it's like, here's how to become a backpacker. Here's what to do when like you get stuck on the trail. But really just it's, you know, there's when you, when you take a step back, there's so many different types of, of overlapping stories of loss that I experienced because so, so backing up for a second, I, I, so I was like, okay, here's my idea. Um, I'm going to start telling people and recording to keep myself accountable. And a month into sort of my training and getting ready for this, my mom passed away. And so from the very beginning, this whole project took on a a very different uh, shade. And so with that in mind throughout the whole process, that that definitely influenced sort of what I experienced and what I saw and how I processed the whole thing. Mm. So much of the uh, show focuses on your experiences backpacking the John Muir Trail. I don't know why I struggle to say mirror. Like, it's just a funny word to look at to me. So for those who might not be familiar with it, this trail is a long-distance trail that's in the Sierra Nevada mountain range of California. It's about 340 kilometers long, and it passes through y- Yosemite. <laughs> Yosemite. Yosemite. <laughs> These are all words that, like, I've seen before but never said out loud. No, totally. <laughs> so here we are. <laughs> It also passes through Kings Canyon and Sequoia National Park. Before hiking this trail, what was your relationship with nature like? And did you have a lot of like outdoors experience in terms of like overnight camping and long distance hiking? So this was our first. So my girlfriend and I did did the hike together and it was our first backpacking trip. Uh, We had both camped sort of car camping. I grew up camping. That was my go to family vacation. And then I went through that part where you sort of rebel against everything that you were raised uh, and then sort of found it again in my adulthood. And so, yeah, so like we would go camping, would go hiking, you know, short hikes, day hikes. Um, I'm lucky enough to to live in Los Angeles near some local parks and even like within sort of an hour's drive, some some decent mountains. And so it was a regular thing. But like I said, as much as I enjoyed it, there were times that I really struggled not just physically, but emotionally with some like the shame of like feeling like I'm walking too slow and am I holding the group up that I might be hiking with? And then you sort of turn that internalize that and like, am I, am I bad? You know, am I struggling? So, so to, yeah. So specifically, yeah, I, I, I was fairly involved with the outdoors and that's sort of how I knew about this hike, you know, uh, your listeners might be familiar with the Pacific Crest Trail that goes from Mexico to Canada. And so this stretch through the Sierras is part of the PCT as well. So, um, you know, it's like you hear these stories, you see people do this stuff. And I was just like, that looks really fun and cool, but I'll never be able to do that. But here I am having done it. 
It's interesting, like you mentioned about feeling sort of like ashamed of your pace and stuff, because there seems to be this sort of like um, barrier of access to like being an outdoors person that I think is like really prevalent in the outdoors community, which I find troubling because it's like, really, all of us should have like equal access to the outdoors and none of us should feel like we don't deserve to participate because we are slower or we don't have like the greatest equipment or experience. And I find like this is very persistent. Yeah, no, it's it's something that you hear a lot of people talking about, even in like, you know, athletic clothing is it is made for people of a certain size. And, you know, I definitely got some some like, you know, I started jogging and running and and you have the people who I truly think mean well, but sort of condescendingly go like see see a, a heavier person running and they're like, good job, way to go. You got this. It's definitely it's an it's, it's an interesting feeling. Plus. Sorry if I'm taking this in a different direction than you want to go to, but like no, there's the it. whole there's the whole issue too of like wanting to like love myself, but also wanting to make a change. And then am I making wanting to make this change because I want to, or am I doing it because of societal pressures? And so the, yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff that's just barely hidden under the surface that you know, you're, you're forced to deal with when you're walking for hours alone on a trail in the middle of nowhere and you don't have cell reception and you're, you know, a day away from the nearest town, etc. I haven't ever myself done such an intense trail hike, but the, the thing I can best relate that experience to probably is a couple years ago, I backpacked through Europe completely alone and I'll always remember this like one period, you know, when you're like backpacking, you're in hostels, you're constantly meeting people. So it doesn't really feel like you're alone. I had this like one month period where I just didn't meet anyone that I really connected with. And I remember feeling like this immense sense of loneliness that I had never in my life felt before. And I wasn't like really alone because I was like in cities like there were people around but it wasn't there was no like way to like really connect personally with anyone and I remember like going through this like incredible like mental state where like you say I was forced to just think about things that were uncomfortable or things that I had done the work to not think about that I had like very carefully compartmentalized and I couldn't escape it in this period of loneliness and it, it was really like it was a hard period for me. I remember feeling like very, honestly, kind of depressed, which was weird because I was like, I'm doing the dream right now. I'm solo backpacking as like a young woman in Europe. But um, yeah, despite that, I think it was kind of formative to like have that time with myself because I think a lot of people never experience that, that kind of loneliness in life. Totally. I spoke for the podcast uh, that I made about my hike with a mindfulness therapist. And one of the things that he said is like, a lot of people can see what I did, or and maybe what you did as like running away to not deal with things. But in reality, you're not running away, but you're running to a place that gives you the ability to and the opportunity to actually sit with those feelings and emotions and process. And for me, it's like, grieving the loss of my mom, grieving sort of the, the, this, this shame spiral that I sort of felt like understanding what it means. And like you said, to potentially and hopefully have a transformative and, and experience and grow out of it. For sure. And so was there an event or a particular moment that inspired you to take on this challenging hike? Like, can you pinpoint the moment that you decided, okay, I'm going to do this? 
Yeah, I think it was one of those things where, like I said, camping sort of became a a go-to vacation of mine in adulthood. And for better or for worse, I can be a little bit of like a completist. I want to check things off a list. So I was like, okay, every camping trip, going to go to every national park in America, you know, in the U.S. and start checking them off one by one. Done a bunch of them. They're great and incredible. I can't recommend them enough. But you know, as 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 you look at a map, ones require a lot more planning because it's like, oh, this may be a couple days drive away, or do we have to fly here and rent a car, or who do we know who lives in the area that we can sort of save money by, like, uh, you know, jumping over. But uh, so the Grand Canyon was one of these places where it's like, I would love to go to the Grand Canyon, but do I want to go to the Grand Canyon and not hike it? You know, the rim to rim hike, and it's just sort of like could I even do that? Like, and I was worried that at the time, you know, I was almost 400 pounds and I was just worried like through the heat, through the weight of carrying a pack on top of that. And just the difficulty of that hike, like it's, it's the type of thing where it's just like, am I letting this one thing prevent me from experiencing the Grand Canyon? And do I keep putting that off, putting that off, putting that off until I'm ready? And so rather than waiting to be ready this trip, even though it wasn't to the Grand Canyon, became the thing like, we'll make a plan because there's always going to be a good excuse not to do something. So make the plan and then do what you can to prepare for it and be as prepared as you can and start it. Can you give me the full mental picture of sort of the nitty gritty of the experience? Like what is, what kind of challenges do you face when you're on a hike like this? Yeah. So leading up to the hike, uh, like I said, a month into sort of the training my mom passed away. And so it weirdly sort of reframed everything at times in sort of like a selfish, you know, you only live once. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. Stop putting things off sort of things. And so the year I spent sort of training, there was a lot of hardship and struggle and difficulties just in exercising more for the first time, being more active. You know, uh, I started walking everywhere I could instead of driving so like, yeah, there was the, the physical difficulties, but when I started the hike, you know, I was in the best shape I, I, I had been in since I could remember, ended up losing a hundred pounds, felt really strong, felt very prepared, but I wasn't prepared for the emotional stuff. I, I, I was going to the gym to work out, but I wasn't necessarily going to the gym for your mind. I don't know if that's therapy or what that is. Um, so... I was sort of confronted with a lot of that on the actual trail. So while I felt pretty good physically, there were definitely times that I struggled early on the elevation. You know, you're at, you're above 10,000 feet. I don't know what that is in kilometers. Um, but the air is pretty thin up there. And it's, uh, you know, that was definitely early on. I was like, am I even going to be able to do this? Can I get out? But then, then it's the, the physical stuff feeds in again to that mental process of just sort of like forcing to check in with yourself, to sit with yourself, to actually do the work. I think I'm really good at sort of going deeper than most people, but not really deep enough to do the work. And so it's like, I can pat myself on the back and say like, you're good, Andrew, you're healthy. You're processing the the loss of your mom. You're processing this transformation in your life. You know, you're dealing with these feelings of shame for, and guilt from your past, but then not actually dealing with them. So on the trail, 
like we keep echoing, you know, there are times when you're just alone in some of the most awe-inspiring places you'll ever be. And what struck with me was this idea of like breathtaking, that phrase, like that's that speaks to like the beauty and wonder and majesty of the environment. But having your breath taken away is an actually is actually a pretty scary and difficult and challenging thing. And so metaphorically, like there was a lot of time where I was just forced to sort of say, you know, what do you want in life? Who are you? Who are you supposed to be? What does it mean to be part of a family where your mom just died? What is what is a family? Is a family something you're born into or is it something you choose? The relationship with my girlfriend who we were doing this together, like we'd been dating for several years, but you go through both the trauma of losing a parent and the difficulty of a, a, a long distance hike like this. It's going to bring up and showcase things that you you weren't expecting that you couldn't plan for. And you know, I was looking forward to the process specifically to do this with her because it's like, if we can get through this, we can get through everything. I knew it would be bonding and it'd be something we could share. But I also wasn't prepared for how do you be in relationship on the trail? And I don't have a good answer for that. But I think sometimes I think asking these questions is more important than discovering what the answers are. Yeah. I mean, I can relate to a lot of what you're explaining. Like, I I just made me think like, I have been thinking a lot lately about I think like a lot of people can relate to this, like being in a relationship right now in the pandemic is really hard. Mm -hmm. And that's something my partner and I talk about a lot is like, how do we do this? Like when we're literally in the same house 24 seven all day long. And I feel like there's some um, similarities there between like being trapped in a house all day versus being on a trail all day together. It's like, we never really have the opportunity to spend that much in-depth time with our partners or with really anyone like ever in our lives. And so it's quite a unique experience. And it's kind of like you have to relearn your the way that you like relate to a person in a sense. And it's there's so many totally agree with everything you're saying, but and there's so many like here's a specific example. Like Rocky, my girlfriend would like me would experience a you know a difficult section of the trail or something really hard and i might tend to to turn in, inward get quiet process it you know maybe give myself a pep talk or just like vent to myself and not sharing it and she would say like oh, i i want i don't want to be here i want to go home and my instant thought was like Okay, let's figure out. Let's look at a map, figure out how do we get off the trail? Where's the nearest town? How do we get, you know, someone to come pick us up? Like, I wasn't actually listening to what she was saying because she didn't want to go home. Like, those were the, the words, maybe, but there was something deeper. And learning, like, how to be a couple together in a difficult experience like that, I'm so grateful for because it's shown me that it's like, okay, like, Andrew, are you actually listening when someone is like coming to you with a problem, when someone is struggling with something? Or are you just trying to figure out the solution that might best fix the problem that you're that you think is there, but might not actually be the real problem? So. 
So you've mentioned um, how taking on this trail was in part, or it became a way to sort of work through and cope with the loss of your mother. And so before we talk more in depth about that, I thought I'd start by sharing a bit about my personal experiences with grief and um, how travel has helped me cope with it. A couple years ago, a friend of mine passed away super suddenly. The loss hit me very hard, and that grief triggered a kind of sadness that I had never experienced in my life, and I think up until now have never experienced again. I was depressed. I found myself having panic attacks very frequently. I had had a trip planned with a friend of mine. We were going to backpack around Cuba, and my friend passed away literally two weeks before we were meant to fly to Cuba. And so I spent that whole two weeks like just debating so hard whether, like I literally didn't think that I was physically capable of putting myself on a plane and flying anywhere because I was just, I was entirely consumed by sadness. I, I just kept thinking to myself, like, I can I can barely get out of bed. Like, I, I don't know how I can get myself to the airport and then like navigate a foreign country. The only way I was able to do it was because I happened to be going on this trip with a close friend who is Rashid. He's actually been on this show before. And I remember him like pep talking me beforehand and saying like, this will help you because he knew I was struggling. And he really believed that doing this trip would be a way to like try to promote some healing. And I trusted him. Um, so I went and he promised me like, I'll take care of you. Like whatever we need to do, we'll go slow. We'll figure it out. And he was totally right. It was a very difficult trip, but it did help me. It helped me begin to heal. And I think that's partly because I was removed from the environment that I had been in for two weeks at that point that was just like full of memories of this person that I had just lost. And I think that was not helping me to be in that state. It gave me space to like separate myself from it and to like really think about what had happened and just take some time to relax away from like the pressures of everyday life. And I was in constant company with someone who was there to talk when I needed it. And luckily, like he didn't have the same relationship with this person I had lost that I had. And I find that, at least for me, that was really helpful because he wasn't in the same state of grief that I was in. And so in a way, he was able to, I don't know, like talk me through things better than I think I could have with people who were also feeling that same grief. And like, frankly, travel was a bit of a distraction. And I think it was a distraction that I really needed at that time. And it was a great way to remind myself that the world was still moving. Before going to Cuba, I just remember grieving at home and it felt like I was paralyzed. It felt like my life had stopped. The world had stopped. Like I just didn't understand any way to move forward. Whereas going to Cuba was this sort of reminder that like, no, the world is still moving. The life will continue and it won't be the same, but you'll be able to do it. And so when I returned to Toronto from that trip, I by no means was like over the grief. I don't think anyone ever gets really over grief. I think it just sort of evolves. But I had definitely worked my way out of the darkest moments. And when I got home, I felt much better prepared to continue work on healing. So similarly, you had lost your mom when you decided or when you went on this this backpacking trip. So how did that loss and the experience of grief factor into your preparation for the trip? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, well, I'm I'm so sorry about your friend, and and it's great that you had another friend that you could sort of do that with and have that other perspective and just other companion there. Um, but it, there, you're right to say that there is something special about travel and being in a, in an unknown place or unfamiliar place that sort of refocuses you. You know, sort of how I dealt with things, I think for a lot of people, maybe this is a, a, a states thing, but I think, I think it's, I think it happens a lot of places is the sort of pretending things are more okay than they actually are. Like the cliche of like, how are you doing? I'm doing great. You know, like, but are you really doing great? Or you just say that because it's what's expected of you. And I think counterintuitively, you know, the, the loss of my mom and like, thinking about that, processing it, remembering her, like counterintuitively, that feels like something that should be avoided because I want to not feel pain, not feel sadness, not grieve. Like I don't, who wants to voluntarily grieve? But when you don't deal with those things, it's kind of like stepping on the gas and the brake at the same time. And it's just, we're not meant to be run that way. Sitting with the pain, sitting through the discomfort is something that I'm still learning how to do because I know from my experience, both before the hike and on the hike, how helpful it can be in processing grief and pain of all sorts. I like your mention of these sort of like norms or like expectations for grief in the US. I think it's it's really like a Western thing that we have this sort of defined way of dealing with and experiencing grief that I I have found, like especially in my travels, that I really appreciate how grief is treated in other parts of the world. I think the main thing I've noticed is that there seems to be this like, I don't know, I just in my personal experience, I felt like at a certain point, it wasn't acceptable anymore to bring up the loss. It was like, everyone in the community was like, okay, that happened. It's done. Like now we don't talk about it. It felt like there was pressure to just like, not be grieving anymore, where in reality, like it's five years later, and I'm still grieving just in a different way. And I feel like, in the West, we just, we have a funeral that's like half a day and that's your time to grieve. And then that's it. No one checks in on you anymore. Whereas in other countries, like grief can last like 10 days, two months. There's like much more elongated um, traditions around it. And yeah, I don't know. It sounds like you had a similar experience to me wherein you felt like the sort of like societal treatment of grief wasn't really conducive to proper Yeah, healing. well, I, I, uh, I grew up in like an evangelical Christian household and I felt pressure to be like, oh, my mom's in a better place now. And, and I don't even want to get into a debate on, you know, whether there is an afterlife of God is real or not. Like, and there's, there is something kind of special about that. And even too, like, there's a lot of people sort of in the circles I grew up in that instead of calling it a funeral or, uh, you know, they would call it like, we're going to have a celebration of life. And again, how beautiful, that's, that's such a beautiful transition. But at the same time, are you doing that to cover up these other feelings or to prevent yourself from going through the process? 
And I do, it's necessary. Like it's, it's, I don't know if it's biological. I wouldn't be surprised the more we're learning and studying, you know, about these sort of stuff that we intuit actually have a deeper connection. Like when you hold that in, when you don't process this stuff, it only creates more pain and chaos. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely one of those things where, again, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm trying not to be cynical because I truly don't think anyone in my family, in my surroundings had bad intentions, but it also sort of felt like deal with this on your own. That's, that's too harsh. That's too harsh. <laughs> you know, but it sort of felt like, you know, like there's a certain amount of sadness that is appropriate. And then there's a certain amount of sadness that is too much and knowing where that line is is important and these are all unspoken subconscious rules that i'm not even sure the people enforcing them are aware of and then for me that just reminds me for me i think i can oftentimes confuse efficiency with doing something well so like grieving efficiently versus grieving properly it's like oh let me let me get this over with as quickly as possible not to just speed it up, but to like, I, 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 I trick myself into thinking I'm doing, like I said earlier, like I'm doing the work. I'm actually doing it well. I'm doing it so good that I can just, I can grieve quicker than the next person. But of course, no, you're not actually grieving with it. This stuff is going to find its way to the surface one way or another. And when it does, are you ready for that? Or is it going to be disabling? Mm-hmm. And to that point, I think like what a lot of people don't realize is how different everyone's experience of grief is. Like no two people are going to grieve in the same way. And I think like this became really clear to me because this friend of mine who passed away, like we were part of a, a large circle of friends. And so I think that's what made this like so devastating. It was like, not only was I going through my own grief, but I had to see all these people around me that I love also going through grief. And I remember feeling like, especially immediately after the loss, like this so much chaos because everyone was grieving so differently and it made you feel or question the way that you were grieving. Like, for example, I remember one day, uh, many of us worked at the same restaurant in Toronto. And I remember one day feeling like I needed to go to work and do a shift because friends of mine who were also grieving were doing that. They were somehow able to go to work and like get through a shift. And I remember like deciding, I'm going to go in, I'm going to work a shift. I'll be fine. I can do this. Like they're doing it. Like I'm good. And I went in and it was just like, the worst day. I couldn't make it through the shift. I had to go home. It was too hard. And that was when I realized like, just because they're grieving in a way that like, I think for some people going to work was a good distraction. Whereas for me, it wasn't, I could, I, it didn't work for me. And so in that context, and I'm sure you experienced that like in the family context as well, it's hard to like recognize that everyone's experience is so different and it's hard to like navigate that, especially when everyone is facing the same loss together. And it's a huge reminder, you know, talk about, you know, the theme of, of losing things. Like it's a great reminder that I'm only in control of myself. And so I have to lose the desire to control other people. And obviously, when you frame it that way, it sounds ridiculous. But so often, that's what we're doing when we expect other people to react or act a certain way. What you said also reminded me, 
you know, there's an overused phrase in hiking that's hike your own hike. Don't don't let anyone else's story or experience dictate how you need to do yours. If you want to carry 50 pounds on your back or if you want to carry 10 pounds on your back, if you want to try to do, you know, 30 miles a day and set a speed record or if you have to do five miles a day, like, you know, you hear that said in time and time again. But like so many things in life, hiking really became a metaphor for what I was experiencing with grief and life and et cetera. So grieve your own grief, hike your own hike, live your own life, put it on a t-shirt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so something that I know I felt when I decided, when I made the decision to go to Cuba after losing my friend, and I think other grieving people probably experienced this as well, was this sort of guilt. I felt like guilty about going traveling. I thought that some people might judge me that it might look like I didn't care that much or, oh, I'm just out there traveling, like living my best life despite like what's just happened. I'm wondering if this guilt is something you experienced at all when you decided to move forward with your trip. Yeah, a little bit. I don't know how meta you want to get, but I definitely (laughs) feel that in the fact that I turned my hike and my mom's death into a podcast. And there's a little bit of like, am I exploiting this? I have a producer who I'm working with and he keeps on reminding me like, this is your story. So like you can tell your story. It's okay. But no, there is, there is this definite perceived or not guilt that is sort of like, why is it okay for me to move forward with this when my mom can't, you know, she loved going to the beach. Like that was her, one of her favorite things to do. And it's just like, she's never going to go to the beach again. But here I am going off on this super ambitious hike. Like, why do I get to do it? Yeah, it's it's heavy sometimes. But, you know, there's there's another way to think about it is how lucky I am that I get to be able to do this. Like, again, live each moment as if it's your last, all the sort of cliche bumper sticker t-shirt stuff. Like there's truth to a lot of these cliches. That's how they became cliches. Yeah, certainly they can be overused, but so it is this weird balance, balance or juxtaposition of like grief and sadness, but also like luck and feeling very privileged and just like wonder and awe. Totally. And on like the note of privilege, I do think it is really important to acknowledge that like you and I were both very privileged to be able to take these trips post loss and like use them as as a vehicle for healing. I think unfortunately, a lot of people don't have the same privilege we've had in accessing those kinds of resources. A lot of people have to continue to live their lives and go to work and like live with grief without the you know, the time to like really work through it. Like, yeah, I I, I took a month off basically. Like Mm -hmm. that's very privileged to be able to do that. I I could afford expensive hiking gear. That was very privileged to do that. I live where I live in a proximity to this trail. Like, you know, and it really is just dumb luck, (laughs) you know, don't have the same lucky set of experiences. So like definitely that was well aware of too that. And that sort of was, Yet another one of these losses I experienced of, you know, whether it's losing of ignorance or losing blinders, but just like to maybe 
zoom out a little bit too much, uh, like what even is like, quote unquote, public land and what is protected land and who are we protecting it for? Who are we protecting it from? Like, what does it mean to like have access to the backcountry? But yet there's also like a lottery and a permit to get back there. And, you know, but what about people who maybe are in a wheelchair or who have other disabilities? Like, do we, you know, put a sidewalk all the way through nature lands and then you bring in the original inhabitants who are still living there today in many cases that have sort of been forgotten and erased. And it's just, it's one of those things that I think we're afraid to talk about and deal with because when you really start to look at it, it can feel overwhelming. But just because something is overwhelming, like grief, like a long hike, doesn't mean it's not worthwhile digging into. Yeah, absolutely. I understand why your mind would go there to thinking, oh, am I exploiting like my experience or the story of loss? But really, I think like your story is so important to tell because in my experience, I felt like no one was talking about grief and it felt like this taboo thing that I shouldn't talk about. There's so many people like even in my life that I've never talked about this with. And so I think it's important to, to for shows like yours to be around so that people feel like this is something that we can talk about, especially like younger people, because I know like my mom, for, for example, even told me like as she got older, death and loss became more commonplace. But I think like especially for young people, it just feels like this far away intangible thing that a lot of people don't experience until later in life. Yeah, and hopefully that's that's one of the things I'm trying to do with my show is like open it up to other people's stories as well too to realize like this isn't a unique experience. I mean it is, but it's also not. And then it's also one of those things which I'm sure you've experienced from from your show where it's like weirdly the more specific you can get to your own story, the more applicable it is to others. But when you try to stay broad, you're actually, it somehow gets lost in translation. Yeah. So studies show that time spent outdoors um, actually has like very trackable benefits. Um, It can lower blood pressure. It can ease depression and anxiety. It can bolster our immune systems and lessen stress. And it actually apparently can even make us more compassionate. And I think this might be why some folks find that spending time in nature helps them to work through grief. Is there anything you can pinpoint about like the experience of being in the outdoors that really supported you in your time of loss? Yeah, like you said, there's a bunch of research that shows like very actual transformation and changes that happen. But a lot of it is sort of sub-perceptional. For me, the thing I keep coming back to is... Hiking specifically, the terrain is uneven. There's rocks and pebbles and roots and dirt. And you're taking steps, making millions of calculations in every moment. Uh, Your body is doing that normally, even on like flat level, even services, making sure you don't fall over checking the weather was that noise i heard a bird or was it a bear was that where's the next water gonna be how much water do i have 
okay, I, I, I don't necessarily have to make X number of miles today, but I do have to get to this place by a certain time. Otherwise I'm going to be, I'm going to run out of food. So you're sort of, again, in a situation, a very privileged situation where you're forced to be present. And then there's a certain simplicity of like every day, wake up, walk, sleep, eat, wake up, walk, sleep, eat, not necessarily in that order. But so those, those two things, the sort of simplistic focus of each day mixed with the unavoidable mindfulness, being present, being in the moment that sort of creates an experience that I think is very healing, transformative. Because when you're in the moment, when you have a simple focus that frees your mind to, like we've said, sort of mull over and deal and process all these other bigger things too. I mean, look, there's there's uh, there's tons of research too now showing how PTSD uh, sufferers are finding healing going to going to nature experiences both alone and then also the the aspect of sort of teamwork and relying on others and you know a lot of people with PTSD can struggle with sort of re-entry into society and uh, whether it's a fear of losing someone again or just not knowing who to trust or how to work together it's amazing. I think I think there's still so much that we're just again intuitively kind of understand, but it's it's always so incredible when there's like a study that comes out and goes, "Oh, actually like 15 minutes a day can change your life, you know. Um the color green can like make you feel better." And so I think all of these combine to be a pretty powerful experience. Yeah, for sure. I also think it's important to just say like this was helpful for us. For me, travel was helpful. And for you, going onto the trail was helpful. But that doesn't mean that those activities will necessarily be therapeutic for everyone. I think everyone who's experiencing grief is on their own unique journey, I suppose. So I just wanted to mention like another thing that I turned to after the loss of my friend was grief counseling. And it was immensely helpful. And actually, most cities do offer some form of free grief counseling services. There are support groups. There are other ways that you can um, find support in a moment of loss. So I just wanted to mention that and ask you, Andrew, if you have any other tips or advice for handling grief. Yeah, I love what you just said. You know, if, if someone asked me, like, I could either go to counseling or go on a hike, what should I do? I would say try to do both, but if you can't, yeah. go to, go to counseling. Um, go to counseling and go to a park in your neighborhood. So, hundred percent couldn't couldn't agree with you more. And, and I'm thankful that you brought that up. I think for me, again, it's one of these lessons that is way more difficult to do than it seems on paper. But it's just being vulnerable, like letting those guards down, telling people how you feel. Like if someone says, "How are you doing?" Be okay. Like, it's okay to say not great. It's okay to say, you know, not so great, but I'll be fine or I'll, I'll get through it. Like, you don't need a, you don't need to like uh, smother me right now, but I'm just being vulnerable that this is how I'm feeling. Um, if you want to smother me, sure. Um, uh, I don't know what fully that entails. So, so, uh, <laughs> no means no. But yeah, I think just being vulnerable, talking about it, not the easiest way to, change a society that feels ashamed of feeling certain feelings is for more people to talk about it. It's an easy equation on paper, but again, harder to do than to say. Mm -hmm. Okay. So before we wrap up, let's talk about something a little lighter. 
I want to hear if you've had any great stories from the trail that um, you can share a little bit about or that people can look forward to on your show. Yeah, I think um, this is a, this might be a little weird, but uh, for anyone who's done a long distance through hike, they know how it can take everyday objects that we sort of take for granted and make them seem amazing. And for me, it wasn't a shower. It wasn't a fresh cooked meal. But there was one night on the trail where we camped at a, a sort of a backcountry campground that unbeknownst to us had a toilet. And it was the <laughs> most magical moment. It was in any other situation. It was probably the most disgusting toilet. It was only it only had like three walls that were, you know, chest high. <laughs> So you had to like sort of always be on your guard to make sure no one would discover you. It was just a hole in the ground basically with an elevated toilet seat. But uh, <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like I I wish I could have that. Uh, I don't know if it's childlike wonder or just an appreciation of the mundane in everyday life. <laughs> I love it. I can like kind of relate to that because uh, when I was traveling in India with my partner, our, um, the thing we loved, like the thing that made us happiest was when we found shops that were selling toilet paper. Yeah. Because <laughs> it was such a rarity, like you'd go, half the hotels wouldn't provide it. And it so it just felt, felt like such a treat to like find a shop that was selling it for some ludicrous price. <laughs> well, I think that's everything. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up? Plug your pluggables. <laughs> So if any of this sounds interesting or compelling, or if you just want to hate listen, you can find this podcast that I made about this whole experience at all the places where podcasts are. The show's called Trail Weight. We're on social media at Trail Weight on Instagram and Twitter. We have a website, trailweight.co. And I'm Andrew Steven in all those places as well, too. Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and produced by Katie Lohr. Do you want to support this podcast? If so, there are a few ways that you can. You can leave a review on your podcast app, tell a friend about our show, or show us your love on Patreon. Pledging $5 a month or more directly supports the making of this show. The link to our Patreon is in the show notes. That's all for now, Alpaca Pals. I'll talk to you again in two weeks, and I hope you all get to alpaca your bags safely and soon. 